Hi! In today's episode, we're discussing the three first volumes of Fake by Sanami Mato. As per usual, we spoil a lot, so this is your chance to pause and go read it for yourself. And since this is another Yahweh manga, here's some trigger warnings about mentioned topics up front. Violence, murder, homophobia, and basically the smorgasbord of problematic 90s themes. However, this is nowhere near as bad as New York, New York. You have our word. After this episode goes out, we're taking a much-needed summer vacation. We've been going non-stop since this little adventure began back in February, so it was about time. The podcast will resume at the beginning of August. In the meantime, if this happens to be your first episode, there's an entire backlog for you. Or maybe you're even interested in a re-listen? Maybe you can suggest this podcast to a friend who's in need of some company during these blazing summer days. Either way, take care of yourselves and we'll see you soon. You can find us at tumblr.com slash theartofpod, at theartofpodcast on Twitter, and at theartofpodcastpod on Instagram. Let's get hot! a comic creator who has recently discovered that food hangovers are a thing when you get old enough, and now I want to forget that fact. Hi, my name is Joss. I'm an artist, streamer, also a podcaster now, which I have to remember to throw in there. And I'm, as always, just doing my best. When I read stories, I often gravitate towards the more grounded and believable elements. Fake is anything but grounded or believable, yet that's not necessarily a bad thing. This police-centered, telenovela-styled yaoi certainly is a mixed bag, and you don't always know what you'll get when you reach into it, and that's kind of exciting. Randy McLean is the new guy in the NYPD, and his new partner is Dee Leitner. But Dee's gonna do his best to make sure their partner's in bed as well as work. This romantic comedy cop drama jumps from case to case as we follow their relationship, misadventures, and a growing cast of side characters. It's kiss or be kissed in fake. Alrighty, so I know, for people who know me and listen to this, you've heard this story a million times. It is my favorite story, and it is very on brand. So apologies in advance, but for the rest of you, buckle up. So, for context, in Norway, it's very common still to baptize your kids in church. And then when you turn 15, you go through a confirmation of beliefs. That's a very nice way of saying it. What it is is that you just want a fuck ton of money because usually you get a lot of gifts during the celebration. And I was one of those kids. I personally am not religious. My parents just wanted me to go through the ceremony and I wanted the awards. (laughs) Most kids get money, just straight up money. And especially from their parents. At least it used to be that way when, when I was 15, which is a million years ago by now. But this was also the beginning of my weeb days. I picked up, by pure chance, the first volume of Fake when I was 14 in a local nerd store, I guess you could call it. I had no idea what Yaoi was. I barely knew what manga was because I think I picked up Fake Volume 1 and Naruto Volume 2. And that was my mixed bag out of that story that day. (laughs) Wow. That's a pair. Tonal whiplash. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, I got home, I flipped through the page, and I went, oh, mamma mia, this is spicier than anything Donald Duck ever showed me. So I was immediately hooked, of course. (laughs) Through heavy internet detective work, I discovered that there were all in all seven volumes of these. 
I somehow managed to strike a deal with my parents, basically my mom, that instead of getting money, and for reference, I would would have gotten way more money than these mangas were sold for at the time. But I bargained that I could get volume one through seven from my parents as my confirmation gift. So what that means <laughs> is that the copies I own today were given to me as my Christian confirmation and it's fucking gay comics. And I got them from my parents because they had no idea. <laughs> I love that. I've actually not heard that story before. It is brilliant. my most on-brand thing that I've always been cringe but I'm also I've also always been very honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so I've got a little bit of contact with Fate from before. Uh, it all came flooding back as I was reading it. I've seen the OVA, which is based upon a chapter from the second volume. And for anybody not steeped in anime terminology, OVA just means original video animation, and it's it was sort of like made for video animation based upon the series. We are covering volumes one to three in this episode. We may come back to do volumes four through seven. Yeah, we discussed this. I talked to you yesterday about it. I was very happy when you said that you would be willing to go back to the remaining volumes. Well, I guess depending on how this conversation goes today, I would be down for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've got to say, like, up front, I had a lot of fun with this. It's weird because it shares a lot of superficial qualities with New York, New York, which we talked about last episode. And New York, New York, it took itself very, very seriously. And as a result, all of the problematic elements of it leapt to the fore. And, and you know, we dissected them in deep depth. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and take a listen. It's a doozy. But this manga, which contains a lot of similar problematic elements, does not take itself seriously in the slightest. Even includes little digs at itself. Uh, and there's a little comment from the author at one point about how she basically knows nothing about the New York Police Department, which I thought was really funny. I'm very glad you bring that up because I wanted to pause and read this note. Up until then, I had taken some more serious notes, a lot of less serious notes, and then I got to this author's note, which I'm gonna I'm gonna read because it's very endearing. And it immediately changed my entire view. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Now I understand how I'm supposed to take this. It says, There are a lot of untruths in my manga. And yes, I know that manga are usually fictional pieces of work to begin with. But in my case, there are a lot of times where I don't have all the reference material readily available. Which is why you might see NYPD officers walking around in LAPD uniforms or driving LAPD cars, but at the same time, stuff like the divisions or departments are somehow accurate, but not completely. I'm really sorry, guys. I really tried. The divisions and departments in the US vary from state to state, even precinct to precinct. So, smiley face. At least, that's my excuse. Wahaha. And yes, there are times when, to further the story, I sort of embellish things as well. But for the most part, I just want you guys to know that I'm a big idiot who really doesn't know that much about anything. So, sorry guys. <laughs> I was like, wow, the yeah. self-insight here is so endearing. Yeah, absolutely. And really, this comic, like the setting, the New York Police Department, is so unreal. It might, not, it might as well not be a real place at all. <laughs> <laughs> the characters do the wackiest Looney Tunes stuff, like set bombs in the attic in order to escape rooms where they can then claim a terrorist attack <laughs> has, has occurred in order to call the police department that they work for. <laughs> there are, like, no ramifications for their actions. It is fucking wild. 
how desensitized everyone is to everything. So in the very first volume, as uh, Paul addressed in the blurb, we meet D. Leitner, who is your run-of-the-mill hot guy, very sexy, very, I wouldn't necessarily say mysterious, but, you know, a, a hunk of a man. And then we're immediately introduced to Randa McLean, a.k.a. Rio, we very quickly learn, because for some reason this book has an obsession with Japanese people, even though it is set in New York. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but they make a big deal out of the few Japanese people present in this book. So these are the, the main two dudes. And then you have Jemmy J. Adams, a.k.a. JJ, who is a former police partner of D, and suddenly just is working at this precinct. Then you have Bicky, who is a street kid who immediately gets adopted by Rio. Carol, who is semi a street kid, question mark. She has a dying father who's dying of illness. She's three years older than Bicky. I believe Bicky is... Is he like 12 or something? Once this... Uh... He's, yeah, I tried to figure this out because they grow up over the course of the three books. Bicky is 10 and Carol is 13. Yeah. So those are the characters we kind of have to care about in the first volume, as well as, you know, the boss, because there's also the police boss here, just like in New York, New York. He is much more goofy, surprisingly liberal, all the same. This precinct, by the way, very gay friendly. Everyone is gay. They're just, it's, again, it's like New York, New York, except no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really is. If they're not gay, they're hella fine with you being gay. This is also released in the same time span as New York, New York, by the way, for reference. It's also around oh, 95. Oh. The similarities are uncanny, not in terms of delivery, but in terms of just superficial plot. It's really, really bizarre. The first book is very much like getting established, getting to know the characters, placing the setting, everything. And then the second book, they're on vacation to England, question mark, which they make seem like such an easy breezy trip from New York to England, but whatever. That's one of a million things you completely have to suspend any kind of disbelief over. It turns out that they're finding themselves in the middle of a serial killer case where <laughs> the serial killer, and again, once again, if I laughed during problematic stuff it's because it's either so wild that i just have to laugh or i'm uncomfortable it's not because i necessarily find it very funny but they're in the middle of a case of a japanese tourist being killed by this hotel that they're staying and it's such like a, from this romp that the first book is where it's basically just d trying to get in rio's pants to them going on a vacation to england together even though they're not remotely a couple because Rio is so closeted and in big denials of being any kind of gay, while D is very open, surprisingly open about being bisexual. <laughs> but still, they go to a, f a fucking vacation trip to England together, and it's so bizarre. And then when the bodies start piling up, they're just like not batting an eye. <laughs> they're constantly in the same room as each other, sleeping together, not not sort of actually having sex no, with no, each no. other, sleeping in the same bed quite frequently. That, that was the f one of the first notes I made was when, I don't even remember why, but Dee is spending the night at Rio's with Bicky, and the three of them sleep in the same bed. And I was just like, are there no couches in this house? <laughs> and it's not like weird or dodgy or anything. It's quite funny, actually. It's, it's got that kind of like classic, oh, the young one's in the middle, and, and by the time he's fallen asleep, he's got his arms all over their faces and stuff. Oh man, no no shits were given once this was being created. It was just, I've got a note here saying that like this whole thing is, it feels like the author having a lot of fun with their OCs. It gives me fanfic vibes in 
the most self-indulgent way. I don't mean that in a derogatory, oh my god, all fanfics suck, because that would be doing fanfics as a whole an injustice. But there is something so shameless and innocent. There, there are parts that we will no doubt dive into, which has not aged well at all, because this is from the freaking 90s. So of course, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna have its stuff. But compared to... So I wrote down that I found this to be a perfect sister piece of New York, New York. But where New York, New York yeah. left me depressed, this one left me a little giddy. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It reminded me of reading manga from this era and really enjoying it. Not because I thought it was serious or important or made me feel important, but just because it was fun and like unabashed and silly and some great comic moments. And also like a little bit messy, just doing the job and getting the story told. It's not always perfectly told or whatever, but it's it's always clear enough. Yeah, I just I just really enjoyed it. Sorry, we went on a giant segue. You, we, you were talking about the vacation they take to England, which was clearly inspired by the author watching some Agatha Christie or something <laughs> like that. So earlier today, I sent <laughs> I sent you a photo of my notes. Where let me just find them again so I can recreate them verbatim. JJ is such a cocksucker. Sudden Japanese racism. Ghosts? Question mark. And those were most of my notes for the second book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is completely grounded story. Well, not completely grounded. We've already covered how it's not grounded, but it's at least real life. But in this little segue, there is. It's not a Scooby Doo ghost. It doesn't turn out to be. Oh, it was the butler all along kind of thing. It's actually a real ghost just hanging around. It's suddenly a ghost story. It's just the authors doing whatever the heck they want. This thought occurred to me today while cleaning my notes that from my very limited knowledge, I think Twin Peaks, the oh. show by David Lynch, did very well in Japan. That's why Silent Hill is so heavily influenced by Twin Peaks, for example. Right. And Deadly Premonition as well, which is just Twin Peaks fanfic. And actually, that made me realize the moment I saw that hotel they stay in, in that segment, I wrote down, oh, looks like the hotel from Twin Peaks. Oh, I didn't even clock that. But what I was going to say is that for people who are unfamiliar, Twin Peaks is, I would say, a police investigation drama, but it has a lot of supernatural elements. And towards the end, it just completely go off the hinges. It doesn't even pretend to be realistic anymore. And I, I kind of get the sense that this author, without having any clue, this is just a wild guess for me, that the author watched Twin Peaks and went, but what if we made uh, Dale Cooper gay? <gasps> oh my god. D is gay Dale Cooper. He really is. <laughs> of course, to be fair, Dale Cooper has a much more graceful personality. Dale Cooper is the sweetest <laughs> yeah. little boy and would never behave like this. But if you made Dale Cooper a raunchy Yahweh character, this would be him. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That's now now my headcanon. <laughs> <laughs> so after solving the murder of Laura Palmer, he does not get absolved into the Black Lodge, and instead he just goes back to New York and gets a boyfriend. Yeah, okay, right. And this is the unofficial sequel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my god. David Lynch, where are you? Make this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of feel like he would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The very subtle ghost stuff in the manga would just be amped up to 11. But that was the thought that really struck me. I get the sense that the author has her fingers in so many inspirational pies that she wants a little bit of every dish into this main course and can't really land on where she want to draw the line of any kind of genre. 
in many instances, I would find that very frustrating, but this is so transparently goofy hour that I just find it very charming. Oh, absolutely. And it suits the format as well, because we're not dealing with a really heavily sustained plot. There are probably about three sub-stories for each book that basically are just self-contained mini-stories that advance their relationship a little bit or introduce new characters, but they always sort of complete themselves. And then we come back to the next. It's almost sort of an episodic storytelling, which is nice. That's something that I miss, actually, from modern comics, because it's got enough of a throughput that it feels coherent, weirdly more coherent than New York, New York did. But at the same time, it's got your nice little self-contained chunks. So if you're not enjoying a particular story, there was one that I didn't get on with so much. I knew it was going to be over and I would just move on to the next one. Oh, which one was that? It's the other serial killer one, but where the serial killer's working for the mafia, there's like a, a sex trafficking boss that they're trying to track down. He's killing women in this really specific way. It dialed the problematic elements up so much that they began to become a little uncomfortable rather than just you could laugh them off. This is where the era really shows itself. I can see the 90s with, again, this weird obsession with serial killers. It's not like that has faded, sadly, because as we discussed with New York, New York true crime podcasts are on an all-time high these days. And the yassifications of the serial killer this is in the third book where they suddenly introduced this other serial killer his whole deal is that he had a little sister who when he came back from school or work one day he saw that his little sister had put on lipstick and apparently both him and his sister were children of a prostitute and as we know prostitutes are never treated in kind lights in these kind of stories so of course he has some self-internalized bullshit that he hates prostitutes and he hates his mother So he just went ahead and killed both his little sister and her friend that stayed over that day. And from there on, he just started killing women who wore nail polish and a certain kind of lipstick. And that's kind of his whole gimmick. It's weirdly so not in the forefront of this volume, even though it kind of should be. And this is where in New York, New York, they try to make you actually feel... At least this was my takeaway that we talked about. It feels like they're trying to make you horny for the serial killer like this Jeffrey Dahmer kind of fucked up thing or Ted Bundy but here it's very obvious that he is not likable and that you're not supposed to desire him in any given way he is the villain yeah absolutely I I definitely got that vibe and they introduce a female character who's exactly the type that he wants to kill in order for her to be able to get into a situation to beat him up as well which I appreciated that was quite fun I wonder if this is slightly pre-X-Files or if it's sort of like overlaps with X-Files because I was getting a little bit of, oh yeah, okay, you've started reading X-Files and watching X-Files, haven't you? From parts of that and parts of the rest of it as well. Especially with, uh, oh, hi, I'm a strong female FBI agent who's come in to, to investigate this one case. But can we also just appreciate that this artist, I fucking adore her art style in this. It's so beautiful, I could eat it all up. That reminded me, I I really appreciated the art as well. I thought that it carried the humour really fantastically. And that was used in absolutely amazing effect at the very beginning of Volume 3, when this female FBI agent, who we're talking about, gets introduced. And she has this brilliant introduction page where she's sort of like swanning in, she does the hair flip, she puts a piece of gum in her mouth, it's all like really beautifully drawn and rendered, and then she blows a bubble gum and then it just pops in her face. (laughs) It suddenly goes all kind of like cute at that point. And that kind of ability to know itself and undermine itself and, and make fun of its own tropes and the tropes that it's exploring, I think is partly what made me so comfortable with all of it. 
Yeah. I have talked about this with you several times, where I find the jarring contrast between very beautifully rendered art and then the kind of chibi, goofy art, I f usually find that very difficult. We talked about it, for example, in Witch Hat Atelier, where it severely mm. broke the mood for me many times. Even in stuff like Fullmetal Alchemist, I never really jived with it that much. Weirdly enough, in Fake, it works so well for me because everything is so silly. Even when it tries to be its most serious. For example, you have in Volume 2, we learned that D was an orphan. So he grew up at a monastery, question mark, and was raised by... Something. Yeah, it was raised uh, by a nun that he just refers to as mother or penguin. And they go to visit her as adults. D has brought a lot of groceries that he's distributing to mother and the now orphan children living there. While he is hanging out with the kids, Rio sits and have a conversation with mother. And they are having a very sweet, nice conversation. And suddenly out of nowhere, she goes, are you his lover then? And Rio goes, and like chokes <laughs> on his coffee and is like, what the fuck? What kind of question is that? This is the vocest fucking nun this side of the planet. She then proceeds to say, you don't like Deed then? And Rio says, it's not like that. I mean, of course I like him. Just not like that, you know? And then the nun proceeds to say, just so you know, I'm not the type to judge. If two people need each other, then it doesn't matter if they're both men or both women. And I think that being lovers with someone isn't a bad thing at all. It's a good, good thing. And I was like... If the church preached this a little bit more, maybe they would have some more followers. <laughs> yeah, I've made a note for myself on that page. It just, just says, awfully progressive nun. <laughs> My note was, this nun slaps. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And that's what I mean. Even in more serious conversations like these, you suddenly have Rio's face all chibbed up as he's choking on his beverage and being very stunned by this woman's reaction to the two of them potentially being a couple. It never feels out of place to me. You also have yeah. this big divide where there's this running through line of D making a move on Rio, and then they get interrupted by Bicky. This becomes a little bit tedious, but it also is like the running gag of the series. Bicky tries to quote unquote protect Rio from this predator D. And prior to Bicky interrupting, there's been some beautifully rendered, very saucy kissing scenes. I made some notes where I said, this is making me feel things even as an adult because it's so, <laughs> it's the exact kind of erotic portrayal that I love in a yaoi where you don't see a single penis or even a nipple. You just see tongue kissing, but it's, it's so beautifully portrayed. D likes his tongue. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where everything is so comedic that in a way the drama breaks the comedy rather than the comedy breaking the drama yeah which is nice because every now and again you get this dramatic glimpse and it's like a tease into the relationship that they might have or every now and again the characters will settle down enough to have a serious thought about themselves and it just gives you enough to really care about them and want them to develop and you're given just enough sense that Rio is sort of in the closet and trying to work through it that the fact that D keeps on sort of like kissing him out of nowhere is just sort of and he doesn't want to resist isn't weird it's like oh yeah go on yeah you, you can do it you can do it you can admit <laughs> that you like him I'm ready for you baby boy <laughs> yeah exactly after reading that segment with the nun and just what's reading this in general and comparing it to New York New York I had a kind of like sudden thought about writing in general that this perspective over time has helped me realize which is that 
at any time in history, any story that makes a point of stopping and saying, oh, look how good we are now, look how progressive we are now, look how right we're currently doing things, gets hilariously stuck in time the moment that those words are put on paper. We're in this period where we're obsessed with doing that in storytelling, to put it bluntly. I cannot imagine what it's going to be like in another 20 years when we look back on it and social standards have changed or things have moved on or framing has changed or culture has changed as it does so rapidly as is evident reading all this old stuff. And I love that Fake cares enough to put some of this stuff in there but doesn't hammer it home in the way that New York, New York did. And part of what dated New York, New York horrendously as well is, is, is exactly that. Yeah, fake never comes across as preachy. It's very yeah. much hate it or love it, take it or leave it kind of scenario. And I appreciate that. I was very worried going back to fake, especially having gone through New York, New York, which was just so <laughs> difficult. Similarly with New York, New York, I remembered very little outside of the core essence of fake. I remembered more because I've read fake a million times as a teenager. I will say there are things that made me stop in my track. There's especially, of course, use of slurs that makes my brain go, okay, that's not okay in 2023, because they they use a lot of slurs very liberally at times, especially Bicky, who's a kid, so it's very jarring. Yeah. But this Yaoi is ripe with the tropes. For example, the power imbalance, you could argue even from day one, page one, where Rio gets assigned to D. D is in a position of power and he immediately hits on Rio and makes all kind of bauchikawawa gestures to him. Already there, there's a, a power imbalance. And then later in volume two, you get introduced to Berkeley Rose, who is this... I don't think he's in the FBI, but I'm not certain. He's at least a higher-up boss that stands in for their actual boss at a certain point. And he is also obsessed with Rio, because you have the thing where the UK, aka the bottom, aka Rio in this case, is the one going through all the shit, just like Mel from New York, New York, to a much lesser degree, though. And also attracts all the leery dudes. But even, even when the police boss, Rose, makes a move on Rio... Rio immediately stands up for himself by punching him in the face (laughs) and then just leaving and there's no repercussions to it, which is very, it is incredibly unrealistic and I can see some people getting uncomfortable, but it's handled so silly, but purposefully silly that not once did I sit there going, "Uh, this is problematic. I get that it's a fantasy. Right. Yeah. And that's where that thing I was trying to talk about with with sort of it, it being an author playing with some characters, that's the sort of general feeling. Like, she just wants to have fun with them, and the games that they play with each other are not real power plays. They're kind of like comfortable comedy roles. I was never worried that the boss was actually going to genuinely hurt Ryo in any way. He was just sort of trying to manipulate things so that they could have a romantic relationship together. It almost feels very sort of early cartoon stuff where, you know, like maybe a cartoon character will put a picture of a beautiful person in front of their face so they'll get a kiss and they'll move it aside at the last moment so they get a real kiss, you know. (laughs) It's that level. It genuinely is that level. But at the same time, Rio for kind of an UK character, he's very gung-ho sometimes. Like that moment when he plants the bomb in the <laughs> bu- in the building. The literal actual bomb, <laughs> not a euphemism. Yeah. Bomb in the attic? Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. It's page 47 in volume one. Rio jumps in to this 
effectively a hostage situation. Bicky and Dia being held hostage. Rio's come to rescue them, and he comes in through the roof. Then he's like, I set up a bomb in the attic. It's supposed to go off two hours from now at 10 o'clock. And Dee's response is, where did you get a bomb? And Rio is just like, my old army buddy taught me how to make them a while back. It's a pretty crude bomb, but in a house of this size, it'll probably take half of it down when it blows. This is meant to be a cop. I can't even tell what kind of cops these guys are meant to be. Detectives? I don't know. Yeah, because they're not dressed like street cops. They, I, I wrote a note. Everyone in, in this is dressed to the nines. It's so funny. I think, I think they're meant to be homicide detectives, but I can't quite tell. And so he reveals that he sent a prank call to the precinct he works for. He could have just called them. So the entire city's cops will come down on the place because there's a terrorist alert out on it. Because he really did actually plant a bomb there. <laughs> it's fucking wild. I never understood the roundabout way of solving this case. Why not just show up with the police? What are exactly? They, I, I don't understand the logic behind this, and it's never. <laughs> I think, from what I recall, the boss gets kind of a idea that they've been involved, or it's a later case maybe where the boss knows that they have been involved in it when they shouldn't have, and they just get like house arrest. There's no <laughs> other. There's no punishment dished out to these two, quite frankly, terrible cops. Yeah, they just get. I think they get temporarily demoted to juvenile crimes or something. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, they get stuck in the house, so uh, they realise that the timer is not long enough for them to escape and the house explodes with them only having just got out. The whole thing is, it genuinely is totally slapstick, completely Looney Tunes, but mixed with this kind of really fun sort of relationship storyline, which um, <laughs> makes it feel more adult. So another reason why I kind of draw the parallel between Twin Peaks is because Twin Peaks is very cast heavy. Mm. Due to the grace of it being a television show, you have much more time to go around and investigate every single relationship between people there. The thing in Fake is that in the main part, in I would say 85% of the book, we follow Dee and Rio and their whole adventure together with little sprinkles of minor side characters. But then, towards the end of every manga, every volume, there's like 15, 20 pages where we follow Bicky aged by three years, how his life is going on. He's now effectively a teen. He is struggling with his relationship towards Carol. They are still not a couple, but already in the first volume, Carol and Bicky are on a school trip and Bicky ends up saving Carol from an actual fucking bear with a taser because he thinks <laughs> he thinks it's a couple of his classmates having dressed up in a bear skin, trying to just scare them. <laughs> And then it turns out it was actually a fucking real bear. So he tastes the bear thinking it was his classmate, which is already fucking questionable. Then it turns out it was an actual bear and they hightail it the fuck out of there. But I was just wondering, how do you find this part of the manga when we stop following Dee and Rio and we jump over to Bicky and Carol? In the sort of like immediate shift from one story to the next, I often lost a bit of attention because we weren't following the main characters anymore. But I think there are two stories that follow them and only them. And in both of them, by the end of them, I was like, oh, they're cute together. Because there's a sort of a similar sense of comedy and a similar sort of like funny dynamic in their relationship going on. I wasn't that bothered. I, I, I like the extended cast. How about you? As I said, I didn't look into the, the follow-up volumes since we're hopefully going to read them down the line. So I want to meet them fresh. But from my memory, I 
do recall that they end up properly hooking up together towards the end. And I can't help viewing it through adult eyes today and being like, mm, we followed Bicky since he was a child into getting laid. It's a little weird juxtaposed to these two adult men constantly trying to get laid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a bit odd. My take home of, of those sections was actually, I left myself a little note, which is that if none of the surrounding comic existed, this would be a perfectly adequate teen romance drama, just playing out in its own little sphere. So in, in that respect, that trajectory is not all that unusual, I guess, the sort of promised childhood friends who have had a thing since they were kids and then grow up and they have a real relationship. I've seen that played out in loads of shoujo manga before. I guess it's just the juxtaposition of the adult characters who are sort of weirdly half adopted them, but not really, because there's absolutely no such thing as a legal procedure in this comic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what I'm alluding to, is that just as you point out, there's nothing weird with following a young couple blossoming, if you put it like that. It's that it's jammed into a yaoi that makes me go, ah, and this is where I feel the author is pulling inspiration from stuff like Twin Peaks, where they very clearly want several storylines here, but some of them just doesn't blend that well together. I, yeah, I see what you're saying. How do you feel about the slow burn? That's also something that the author addressed in one of the end notes, where she basically goes out of her way to apologize that they haven't fucked by volume three, which I found very hilarious. I like it. Like you said, it's a sort of, it's a part of the comedy. The fact that they're constantly being interrupted, not just by Bicky, but by all sorts of different other things like telephone calls and their bosses and other characters trying to get together with them like JJ and this creepy boss character and so on. That's sort of the point, you know, it's teasing their relationship. It's making you want them to be together. And then it's throwing lots of things in the way of that that become plot or mini arcs maybe somebody might find that frustrating but the era of tv and stuff that i grew up with like 90s entertainment basically it feels very comfortable and at home for me if that makes sense mm, yeah it is very familiar territory it really feels like this author just wanted to make a gay story and the police setting is very much secondhand it could have been anything it didn't have to be police. I think people were just very fixated with police stories in the 90s, as we mentioned in the New York, New York episode. This was just a very common setting to put something in because it gives you a lot of access to fast-paced action and driving the story forward and giving those, even though nothing is natural in this manga, it lends natural elements of interrupting their ongoing love story. They are always interrupted either by Bicky or someone being brutally murdered. Yeah, absolutely. And they could have just easily been like soldiers or firefighters or doctors or, you know, whatever you want to give that would give them sort of a little bit of extra drama to tap into whenever they wanted. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. In the very, very, very beginning of the book, it's just a couple of pages in, Dee and Ryo have been assigned together, and this is when Dee leans over and says, Hey, you got some Japanese in you or something? Your eyes are pitch black. But that's not the point I'm trying to make, it's just to paint you the page it's on. The page before that, there's a panel of both Ryo and Dee, and there's a little star there, and I made the note going, Trungle star! Because there's a lot of stars in this to oh. express emotions. And I know for a fact that Trungles has red fake, so... <laughs> so we've discovered the origin of the Trungle star. That's amazing. But I, I don't know if... From what I could tell, it doesn't mean the same as the star in Trungles' book, The Magic Fish. 
but it is a, an expressive thing and it's here. Oh, okay. Or like at least sort of a little sort of proto version of it. Because that's the kind of thing can filter into your subconscious as a reader and then just emerge as a creator. And you couldn't tell anyone where it comes from, but you're using it nonetheless. I think that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of like the story I told last time of me and flowers. I forgot my obsession with flowers stemmed from this until I opened up a volume years later. Ah, uh, yeah. And the, the use of flowers in this one is, is lovely because they're really beautifully hand-drawn. It's not like a flower pattern like we were talking about with New York, New York, mm. where it could have easily been part of a, some screen tone. It's really delicately hand-drawn, merged into the flow of the panels. Very nicely done. The artwork is odd, actually. It's worth commenting on because it is absolutely beautiful, but it's also incredibly heavily stylized. The kind of faces that she's drawing to the point where there are parts where the police chief barely even looks human. (laughs) 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 He looks like he might be a goblin from some video game or something in certain (laughs) panels. But I really love that. I really gravitate towards it. I made a note, for example, that in the same regard, everyone here is more often not dressed to the nine. The way that she drapes shirts into pants, humana, humana, humana. It's so fucking sexy. Like, I didn't think shirts could make me feel things, but when I see these men clad in oversized shirts tucked into very tight pants, I'm sitting here like, mamma mia. Yeah, yeah, she clearly pays attention to costume. There's uh, there's one particular part where, I can't remember which one of them, is wearing Cuban heels, and it just looks so good. Everyone is hot in this. Every fucking one is so beautiful. And even though it made me a little bit annoyed in the third volume where the whole serial killer killing prostitutes kind of hook is, Diana Spacey, the FBI lady, she dresses just like the women that this dude kills. They are actively looking for him. Dee even points it out, like, should you be looking for him looking like that? And she's basically like, don't worry, I know fucking Tai Chi or whatever. Like, she knows some sort of fucking combat sport. And, and I'm just like, girl, nobody at the FBI dresses like this, but you look immaculate, though. <laughs> yeah. In the Bicky story part, Bicky and Carol are having an argument, and then, like, Hong Kong, a car turns up, and Dee and Rio are in the car. So we are just to expect that they are still together years down the line, by the way, so that's kind of endearing. But they are both dressed like some fucking salaryman, and I'm just like, you're in the fucking police. Why are you driving a Mercedes-Benz <laughs> dressed to the nines? Like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. It's just clearly just, you know, what do I want to dress them in today? And I, I kind of love it. This isn't trying to be real, so might as well just make them look fucking hella tight. Especially with D, there's a funny jump backwards and forwards between how goofy he is and how genuinely seductive he is as well. Rio even mentions a couple of times how fucking horny he is. He's clearly a very horny character. But sometimes he turns on the charm, and when he does... It's it's very intense. And then other times he'll just be like, oh yeah, kissy, kissy, wissy, wissy. (laughs) And the the juxtaposition between that is hilarious. There's one note I've made. uh, I think it's in volume three, page 56. I've just written judo kiss. Because there's a bit where he literally trips Rio slightly so that he falls into his arms. Oh, you're talking about the police officer. It's the police officer. It's not D. Is that the police officer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. is that not D? Oh, I'm getting yeah. mixed up. Yeah, it's Berkeley. Who D and Rio have been split up. So D is working with Diana and Rio is working with Berkeley. And you almost get the feeling that Berkeley's like, oh, now I can work with him. So now I can get in his pants. It's so unprofessional. Clearly the only reason he's doing it. 
They are walking down the street together, and then Berkeley kicks his foot and smooches him as he falls in. <laughs> and that's when Rio sucker punched him in the face, and that paddle is so fucking good. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. That kind of thing. It's just hilariously creative at the same time as being very silly. Yeah, and again, it's arguably incredibly problematic too, because Berkeley is his boss, and Berkeley is a super creep. I don't enjoy Berkeley at all as a character, but I also don't hate him. They've deliberately made him hyper-attractive as well as Dee and... Again, he looks just like them, but with glasses. Yeah, effectively, him, Dee, Ryo, and JJ are all the same character with different hair colours. This is also the, the manga that really made me obsessed with page spreads, where you have chapter divides that are just wild illustrations that are more often than not remotely related to the story itself. For example, in one of them, it's Dee being a magician, so it's just like, okay, this never <laughs> has anything to do with the actual story. But I love it. I love those. Then there's a couple of pages where it almost looks like they were colored and then turned into black and white because they're not screen toned. It looks almost markery, which I suspect are colors turned into grays. Those drawings look so muddy compared to the rest, which is hella fucking clean. Well, this is published by Tokyo Pop, and I happen to have a little bit of inside knowledge as to how they used to make their comics. They didn't receive original files from the Japanese publishers, so. They didn't scan the original artwork. They literally took the Japanese comics, melted the spine, which were glued together, to open out the pages, and then scanned those. Frequently, they would be scanning pre-scanned and printed artwork with its own tones. But yeah, that, that's how the sausage got made back then. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. And that explains a lot. Since I was rather confused where, as I told you, the line work is exquisite. But a lot of the screen toning looks really murky. And on those pages that I suspect were originally in color turned to black and white, they're so... They look kind of destroyed in a way. And the, the yeah. print that I own, is a, it's a good print. There's no issues with it. But sometimes I could tell the artwork has been almost damaged in a way, which is such a shame because it's beautiful. It's just like you talked about with The Walking Man, how you blew up into high resolution pages and printed them. That's what I want to do mm. with fake. I sincerely have considered getting a fake tattoo. I think you'd have to get try and get a hold of a Japanese version of the volume so that you could work off that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm I'm glad to have learned that because now now I know. It makes a lot of sense though, because another point I made is that none of the sound effects have even been translated. They left in the Japanese sound effects everywhere, and they haven't even made little notes saying what they mean. Oh yeah, I quite like that actually. Same. I was gonna I love it. I was gonna ask you about that. There's I really one love absolutely it. Absolutely hilarious moment when I think it's just after they discover that the bear is a real bear. And they run off into the distance, but they're just like little stick figures with the Japanese character for ah, following them across the page. <laughs> <laughs> if you are able to read them as well, they have the most insanely extensive onomatopoeia. They've got a specific word for the sound that water makes when it drips onto the bottom of a sink from a tap. That oh, kind of thing. wow, um, that's so cool. It's not just drip, drip. It'll be something, I don't know what it is, but it'll something be hyper-specific, like, you know, dripping will be one word and then dripping into a, into a sink from a tap will be another word. Ah, oh, that is so cool. I that must lend itself so well to sound effects in comics. Yeah, for real, yeah. Because there is certainly something to the fact that 
when sound effects are written out in English, they can become a little dumb. When it just says drip, drip, drip for ages, it gets a little old. Yeah, because it's not providing any extra texture. It's just illustrating something that the the artwork's already telling you, I guess. A lot of the times, the people who will add the English sound effects to volumes like this aren't artists themselves. They'll be graphic designers or sometimes just fans. And so the quality of the drawing on the original sound effects comes from the artist who's putting them straight on the page, whereas the quality of the sound effects from, let's say, I don't know, a professional letterer who can't necessarily draw themselves isn't going to be so wonderful. Mm, yeah. That also brings me to, <laughs> in a little bit of the same regard, it brings me to another note I wrote down. Sometimes it feels like this was translated by a boomer because the language is so fucking dumb. And I don't even mean the problematic <laughs> racial slurs and stuff like that. It's just sometimes D sounds like a 50-year-old man of his time and he's supposed to be late 20s. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what you felt about the dialogue, actually. It's very hit or miss. If I get invested in the scene... It doesn't bother me as much, and sometimes I even find it a little titillating, especially in the scenes where D is being very bossy, like let's say he's pushed Rio to the floor and he's going like, why aren't you rejecting me? Why aren't you pushing me off? I know it's because you want me. And you could argue that's corny dialogue, but I'm just here like, like clapping my yaoi heart and going like, yes, fuck, fuck, like that's me while reading it. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and now <laughs> we get to the heart of the core audience for the young the Aoi genre. <laughs> <laughs> but when they're just walking in the streets or whatever, and then suddenly there's this myriad of weird ass sentence structures that I can't recreate from the top of my head because I'm not a 50 year old boomer. It throws me out and I go, oh, okay, I can see the translation working its charm here. I've got a couple of dialogue notes here. The most ridiculous gay slur I have ever heard, rump ranger. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the kind of thing where you know that's not in the original Japanese. That's just (laughs) some translator being stupid. (laughs) There was also a... Yeah, it's in the story arc of the end of the first volume where Bicky and Carol is on the school trip. I didn't quite understand what the fuck was going on here. I think there are two students pretending to be gay together. And one says, Mark, I... And the other man says, I love you too, Roy. And then Bicky just flings a rock at them because these two guys are clearly just goofing off. (laughs) And then Bicky proceeds to say, Consider that tough love. I just think we need to nip evil tendencies in the bud is all. And then Carol says... But I like watching them say that to each other. And then she says, Look, if you're going to be a violently idiotic homophobe, what are you going to do about D and Rio? And me just over here going, <laughs> My guy, you live with Rio. You already know that they are not getting hot in the sheets quite yet because that takes ages. But they are kissing and D is clearly interested. And what kind of basis does very, very young Bicky have for this raging homophobia? <laughs> So here's something interesting. We've discussed this before regarding English humour. There is a delicately fine line between what I would call actual hatred and what I would call bants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're you're just doing silly quips and they can come across as harmful if you're not inside the humour, etc, etc, or familiar with the person delivering them. Yeah, and this is why a lot of this feels very comfortable with me, because every time the characters are yelling at each other throwing slurs at each other whatever they're doing it always has that edge of bants 
secretly I know you love each other and you're joshing right here. And actually what we're seeing is a display of sort of tenderness or or a suppressed ability to say, oh, I love you, man, you know, that kind of thing. Bicky may have picked up the language from somewhere, but really he's just being protective of Rio and making digs at D. And that's what it sums up as, or at least that's how it felt to me. I super see where you're coming from, but it's very hard for me to forget that this was made in the 90s where the F word was thrown around like fucking money and like being, haha, you're gay or that's so gay, dude. And it was an insult because being gay was lesser. And it is a little hard for me to put that aside and not read it as a little bit harmful. Because, yeah, I don't think... It, it becomes evident down the line that Bicky obviously doesn't have a huge problem with the two of them being together. But there is also a grain of homophobia in there where you don't jokingly say today, if we're a decent person, that you gotta nip that behavior in the bud because you don't want your XYZ to turn out to be a gay person. Yeah, no, and I totally understand. And I think that part of the, the weird feeling reading this is is the sort of strange sense of dislocation that happens with the yaoi genre where you're being presented with this incredibly unreal thing and it's hyped up to the nines in fake. You know, there's nothing that even attempts to ground it. And so you end up in this kind of strange little dreamland whilst you're reading it. And it's easy to forget about the sort of more problematic elements of the stuff that you're reading. But then we've also got, you know, I think back to secondary school. And if somebody wanted to take the piss out of someone in a nasty way, they really would say, oh, gay or something similar. But we're living in a world where the meaning of that in everyday social dialogue has literally changed and lost some of its teeth. And I see sort of gay people using it almost like a kind of a parody way like when they'll say like oh gay but they'll mean like oh good yeah yeah, yeah. it's the reclaiming of words yeah yeah and we've we discussed a little bit about that in the past and somehow sometimes that can disarm accidentally disarm language that in context back then would have been much worse uh, and I, so yeah all that is to say i totally get what you're what you're saying <laughs> again this is where i worry going into the territory where we've ventured with new york new york where we did get very serious at times because it, it was hard not to in fake, however, it's harder for me to get that invested in the problematic stuff. Even though I super do acknowledge it, I do think the sudden serial killer aspect is tried and tired. I don't dig it. There's violence towards women, which is very typical in certain kinds of yaoi's, where the woman is just completely diminished. And then you have, of course, what we have addressed, like the power tropes and all of that jazz. But on a whole, I just can't take this seriously. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, I'm perfectly fine reading it as the telenovela romp that it presents itself as and leave the discomfort by the roadside. Yeah, yeah, and I get what you mean. And I can imagine if someone didn't gel with it, that they, in their own hypothetical podcast, might have a New York, New York-style episode in which they just ripped into this for all of the reasons we ripped into New York, New York. You can go for all of them because it doesn't take itself seriously, but I suppose you might be able to kind of reconstruct it in such a way that that's a problem rather than a benefit. But at the same time, I'm right there with you, and I think it just has to do with personal comfort levels. It has to do with the fact that I grew up reading stuff like this, the fact that I grew up reading 90s media in general. The standards I now have for modern media are, are sort of juxtaposed with all of that, and I'm very aware of that at all times. I think we as millennials are a little more desensitized 
and I'm generalizing, but I do think we're a little more desensitized to hysterias because we grew up in an incredibly fucking crude age where a lot of really not okay stuff was going on all the time. And then with the current age that we find ourselves in now, where everything gets scrutinized and put under a lens and analyzed and pulled apart, I'm all for correction and bettering yourself as a person, but I do also think you can quickly dip into hysteria. Sometimes it's just nice to have a space in which you don't move into a mode of judgment. And again, I don't know if that's just something I need as a millennial who grew up with that. And quite often the way that you dealt with difficult things in that era was comedy, was making fun of them or making fun of yourself or bants or whatever it happened to be. I think it's interesting that we keep on coming round to this as a theme in a number of different contexts with different books, just the changing culture around reading. Yeah, I guess it's a huge combination of our age and all the kind of different things we're picking up. We have read both rather old stuff by now, like fake, or much more recent stuff like Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, and they couldn't be more different. Yeah, I, I really do think the context of our age is something to keep in mind. And I know that I personally really try to put in the works to better myself as a person. And there's a lot of stuff that I've had to weed out and root up and just leave behind because it, it doesn't age well. And I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I do I do miss a more... I, I don't miss the problematic stuff. That's not the point I'm trying to make. I miss a more level-headed approach where you can recognize something being of its time or you know, similar reasons for something being a little tougher to digest. Yeah, as I said a million times, we, we really should be aware of the Puritan approach that we're currently finding ourselves in. Yeah, for real. So that kind of leads me back to a question I wanted to ask you as we were winding down in the podcast, which is now that we've chatted about it, and this having been a formative part of Jaws in the past, how do you feel about it now? I am very pleasantly surprised revisiting it. I was worried that I would either hold it in too high regards and not be able to be critical of it because it's my baby, or that I would have a New York, New York experience where it would shatter my deep love for it and my fond memories. I have to say I'm very happy to share it was similarly heartwarming to go back to this and a little bit embarrassing and frustrating for all the things that we talked about. There are things where I wasn't able to engage that much and I can see that something has dated poorly or just because I have developed as both an artist and a storyteller since there are techniques and story elements that I would have tackled differently or not at all. But that aside, I just love this manga. And I'm able to keep loving it despite the flaws and despite the age and despite my age. Do I think it's perfect? Not remotely. Would I recommend it to anyone? Probably not, because I don't necessarily think it is that fantastic. But it's something that I've managed to keep in my nostalgia capsule and it still means the world to me. So it's not something I would preach to the crowd, but it's something that I will keep in my own heart. It's funny, reading it, I was, I was imagining it would be something like that, not in as much detail, obviously, but it brought up similar feelings in myself about other things that are very similar that I enjoyed back at the time. It was kind of not exactly bittersweet, but there is a mix of emotions there for me as well. I guess that's probably what's got us reflecting like this at the end of the podcast. It felt like being able to experience summer vacations of my youth again. 
but with the current mindset of an adult so I could actively appreciate it as I was participating in it instead of 30 years down the line reminisce about it and that's it. Like now I'm returning to something that was so deeply important and familiar to me with the mindset of an adult and everything that I've learned since and still being able to appreciate it is very magical to me. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm looking at our first ever episode, which is this one summer. And that's exactly what that was, wasn't it? It was the experience of growing up seen from the point of view of an adult and all of the things that you pick up and all of the things that you leave behind and the ways that you change. It was a proper perspective warp reading this. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's safe to say for me that had I not randomly stumbled across Fake in that tiny little comic book store at age 14, I don't know that I would have become so invested in comics myself to the point where I actually wanted to make them. The fact that you can make stories that make people feel something, be it sorrow or lust or horror, this awakens something in me. And I don't mean that in like, the (laughs) I sat there like as a 14-year-old horny as fuck. I mean, it stirred something deeper in me that media can affect you to this degree. Actually, hearing you say that made me realize that I went through a very... For me, it was actually animation that did it rather than comics. I got into comics a little later. But I went through a very similar process, probably around the same age. There was a sort of like a little thing where if you got into anime back then, you always had to watch Ghost in the Shell and Akira. Those were the two things that everybody talks about, partly because they were one of the few things that were really consistently available on VHS. It was watching those that made me go, wow, this sort of entertainment can do this? You know, it can make me feel these things? I want to be able to, to do that. And comics are just such an incredible medium for it. This segues perfectly into what we're tackling in the next episode, because that's quite different than what we've done up until this point, including the Yaoi school special. The next episode, we're actually discussing our biggest inspirations, and I feel like I've taken a huge dip into that with this episode, but I I certainly have more to bring to the table. How about you? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's funny, because we've both done one of our biggest inspirations. I did The Walking Man, you did Fake. So it's going to be really fascinating bringing some more to the table. I'm really looking forward to the next episode. I think it's going to be a very sweet summer episode to just reminisce and share. And maybe we'll even learn something that we both didn't know about one another, but maybe even about ourselves. Because you presenting Mm. something that you like to me, maybe go like, oh yeah, I can totally see that's why you do blah blah blue. And you going, oh, I never thought about that. Those conversations to me are worth its weight in gold. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's think of this as our summer vacation episode in that case. I think that's a fun way of putting it okay well really looking forward to it and uh i'll see you next episode yeah see you then bye bye i've just found my note about the bear it just says tasing a bear lol (laughs) (laughs) that that bear's expression was fantastic by the way so fucking (laughs) funny really carried the drama you know what I think I got through that entire thing without saying next week. I'm going to curse myself by saying this now. Mm